our scripture that can be found on page four. Page four. This is Jesus continuing in that wonderful chapter on the vine and the branches. Page four, John fifteen twenty six. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. The word of the Lord. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So wrote the great famous church leader Tertullian in 197 AD in his famous book Apologeticus. He wrote Apologeticus to defend Christianity and to uh, write to the Roman government who was persecuting Christians all around the world. He was basically communicating to them that if you continue to persecute Christianity, you will not stamp it out. Rather, you will increase it because the blood of the martyrs is the seed from which springs the church. Now, we have no trouble thinking of persecution and martyrdom as a great obstacle to the spread of the gospel, which will not, however, be successful in hindering church growth. We also would have no problem affirming that the blood of the martyrs is a hurdle which by God's grace can be overcome. But to say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church is an altogether different concept. What Tertullian is saying is without martyrdom, the church will not and would have never have taken root in the world, whether it be in Tertullian's time or the Alka Indians in South America or in China or in Burma, or the islands of the South Seas. What Tertullian is saying is that the blood of the martyrs is a necessary means for the worldwide application of Christ's great redemptive accomplishment. Without this blood of the martyrs being spilled, the church does not spread, but rather it is by it that the church has spread and will continue to spread. You know that the word witness in Greek is martyr. And so they go hand in hand, martyr and witness, persecution and proclamation. Together they launch Christianity into the world. And really when you think of it, it makes perfect sense that God has designed it this way. It was by the blood of Jesus Christ himself that the church was born. And it is by his blood that grace came into the world and has continued to go forth. And so we should not be surprised when we experience persecution. We can expect persecution that goes along with witness because witness and martyr go hand in hand. This is why Jesus proclaimed this to the disciples when he was going away. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. In other words, you can expect them. Indeed, the time is coming when people 
who do these things to you actually think they're doing service to God. But they never knew me, and you do. And so this passage was written to encourage and strengthen the body of Christ, us who have experienced faith because those who came before us were willing to give their hearts and their lives to witness even to the point of martyrdom. We have a proud heritage that we must continue on, for we are the church today. It's not simply those out there who go to far-flung lands to proclaim the gospel, but we can feel a sense of antagonism in the world here, can we not? As our Christianity continues to get squeezed into smaller and smaller a place, smaller a box, we have freedom of worship, it seems, in this country, but freedom of religion continues to be shrunk. And so we have to examine our own hearts, our own souls, to see are we willing, are we ready, are we excited to step into this role because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There are three things I want to talk about in this sermon today. The first is the response of our faith. That to witness is a natural response that comes out of the faith that we have. The second is the resources of our faith. That as we witness, we do not witness alone. There is one who comes alongside us, who co-witnesses with us, who gives strength and power and effectiveness to our testimony. And finally, we need to examine the response of the world. For the one thing Christianity is not is moderately important. It is either of the utmost importance or of no importance at all. But the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So let's begin with my first point, the response of our faith. Jesus has been talking about the fact that he is going away. If you remember in John 14, he says that I'm preparing an, a house for you, an abode, if you will, a place for you to live. And then in John 15, he actually takes this word abode and he turns it into a verb. While I go to prepare this abode, I want you to abide in me. That I will come into your heart and make your heart a home in which I will abide with you. And so to abide in me while you are away from this house, this abode that I am preparing. And I am going to be with you, and you are going to take up my mantle. You are going to step in my shoes, so to speak. And he says these analogies. If they hated you, they will hate me. If they persecuted me, they will, excuse me, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if they keep my word, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And so he rounds the corner in John 15, 27. And you also must testify. For you have been with me from the beginning. Notice he doesn't say you may testify, but you must testify. It's an imperative there. And why must you testify, disciples? Because you have been with me from the beginning. There's a reason that these apostles are being chosen to testify, because they have been with him from the beginning. And because they've been with him from the beginning, they've seen everything that he's done. They've heard everything he's preached. They are the eyewitnesses of his faith. I appreciate the beginning of 1 John 1, in which the apostle John says, that which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, it's because they saw Jesus Christ. They heard him and they saw him risen that they testified. It was in their hearts, so to speak, the confidence that Christ was real and he was alive. It does not go on escape that Christianity started in Jerusalem 50 days after the apostles fled from Jesus Christ, cowering and ran away. What was the difference that gave them the boldness to stand in the very place where the uh, Roman garrison was still stationed? It was that they had seen Jesus Christ alive. We are descendants of the apostolic church. And so the message to them is the same as us. You too must testify. For I have been with you from the beginning of your spiritual life. We have not seen Jesus Christ physically, but Christian, you have seen him spiritually, have you not? You've experienced him in your hearts. You've seen the truth and the reality. You've looked at the evidence. And so we are witnesses. As I thought of this word witnesses, witness, I thought about what are the ingredients of a compelling witness? It's the same thing that Jesus, why Jesus told the disciples that you must be my witnesses. The first ingredient of a compelling witness is firsthand experience. The apostles had seen Jesus. They had seen him, and it wasn't something that it was abstract. No, it was in their hearts. It was in their eyes, that which we have seen. And in the same way, we proclaim Jesus Christ, not as an abstract concept, uh, concept, but rather who have firsthand experienced him in our lives and in our hearts. I've never physically heard Jesus Christ, but I've heard him in my heart and mind and soul in a way much louder than any word that anyone has ever given me. Never neglect the fact of the firsthand experience that you have had with Jesus Christ. Second, the ability to express the testimony with your lips. I don't simply proclaim my experience, but I proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, Christianity really isn't that complicated, is it, in the end? God came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And he died on a cross for my sins, that my sins might be forgiven and that I may be rendered righteous before his sight. Express testimony, the ability to communicate. Number three, confidence in the power of God. The apostles had confidence in the power of God because they saw that he had been resurrected. They saw what he had done and they saw how he had moved in their hearts. And they had confidence in his power. And finally, compassion for the spiritually lost. When Jesus Christ looked out on the crowds, he had compassion them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd the apostles knew what it was to be out of the favor of God and then to be back and to experience his blessing and care 
it makes me think a little bit of the story of Helen Keller. Many of us are familiar with the story of Helen Keller and that day that her teacher came to visit with her, Anne Sullivan. But a lot of us don't know the story of Anne Sullivan, do we? Who was this woman that came? Here's a little background on Anne Sullivan. When she was only five years old, she contracted a bacterial eye disease known as trachoma, which created painful, uh, which created painful infections and over time made her nearly blind. When she was eight, her mother died and her father abandoned the children two years later. And they were sent to an overcrowded almshouse where her brother died two months later. She remained there for four years. She lost her sight at a young age and therefore had no skills in reading or writing or sewing. And the only work she could find was as a housemaid. However, this position was unsuccessful. Another blind resident staying at the almshouse told her of a school for the blind. And during a 1980s inspection, she convinced the inspector to allow her to leave and to enroll in the Perkins School of the Blind. She went there, but she faced great challenges. She had never been to school, and she lacked the social graces which put her at odds with her peers. She was humiliated by her own ignorance. She had a quick temper and liked to challenge the rules. She was incorrigible, so to speak. And although her rough manners made those first years humiliating, she managed to connect with a few teachers and befriend them. And they taught her. And luckily, uh, she actually, there was a, uh, a new uh, procedure that was performed on her eyes that rescued her from her near blindness and allowed her to see, albeit limitly. In 1886, she graduated as the valedictorian of her class. And she stated, fellow graduates, duty bids us to go forth into active life. Let us go cheerfully, hopefully, and earnestly and set ourselves to find our special part. Her first assignment was to go to the house of Helen Keller. How was it that Ann Sullivan was able to have compassion and love for such an incorrigible, deaf, and blind child? Well, it was because she had been one herself. Well, everyone else had given up on Helen Keller, Ann Sullivan did not. She stuck with, with Helen Keller. She altered all of the rules and what was supposedly supposed to work. In fact, she stuck with Helen Keller her entire life. Ann Sullivan was the consummate witness for Helen Keller, bringing her from darkness to light. We all know the rest of the story, if you will, on Helen Keller. But I think it's such a beautiful picture of what Jesus is calling us to do with the Helen Kellers out there who cannot see or hear the truth of the gospel. Do you remember what it was like to be without grace? I'm blessed in a way to not have grown up in a Christian home. I remember the weight of my sin on my shoulders. I remember the estrangement from being far off from God. And I remember that fateful day when I heard the gospel and felt the weight of my sin lifted off my shoulders. There's no one more thankful to sit at the table than the one who remembers hunger's pain. And there's no heart more grateful than the one 
when all they knew was shame, wrote Stephen Curtis Chapman. Does your faith have a response? For you too must testify. For Christ has done a work in your heart. I'm speaking, of course, to those who are Christians, not those who are seekers today, who have come maybe to hear the gospel for the first time. Really, there are only three options we have. Number one, we can delegate it to those professional Christians, the ones who have the degrees, the ones who are learned, the ones who get paid to do that sort of thing. We can delegate it to them and take our place in the stands. Or we can relegate it. I'm too busy with all the things that I have to do. My Christianity is part of my life, but it's a part-time job. I've got to build my kingdom. I've got to punch my clock. I've got to pursue my course. We can delegate it. We can relegate it. Or we can participate in it. We can be a part of helping people move from death to life, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. There is a response that God is calling us to with our faith. You too must testify, for you have been with me. This brings me to my second point, the resource of our faith. In verse 26, Jesus says, when the counselor comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Counselor, parakletos, the Holy Spirit, which literally means one who comes alongside. Jesus is saying that I'm going to send someone with you. You must testify because you have been with me, but I'm sending one to be with you, the counselor, the one who is called the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth because he speaks truth. And he carries on the ministry of Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And throughout scripture we see the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal and illuminate. Remember the Apostle Paul who thinks he's doing a service from God and a service for God and is on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians. And Jesus speaks and the Holy Spirit comes and the scales from the eyes of Paul fall and he's able to see the truth that he has been persecuting God himself. What about the Holy Spirit as the fire that illuminates the darkness, that leads the way? It's the Holy Spirit that gives the words of Jesus Christ power and effectiveness. Now, I find this very interesting as I was looking at this passage. It says, when the counselor comes, who I will send to you from the Father. Why does, the Holy, why does God send the Holy Spirit to, you, to me and you? Why doesn't he send it to the people who need to hear and illuminate them? Because the Holy Spirit works together with me and my testimony. As Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He sends the Holy Spirit into me and with me. So when I proclaim the gospel, the Holy Spirit is there. Verse 13 in chapter 10 of Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, though, can they call on the one they have not believed in? 
and hear without someone preaching to them. And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. What is it that will make your and my witness effectual in the world? It is my experience, yes. It is the passion that I have for Jesus Christ, the reality, the truth that I know of what he's done and who he is in my life. But ultimately, it is not me, but the Holy Spirit that comes alongside and accompanies me and takes my feeble witness and gives it power, that takes the scales and takes them off the eyes of his chosen people, whoever they may be. This is why Paul knew that it wasn't his eloquent testimony upon which this whole Christian program depended. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul said, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. See, each one of us, as we go into the world, and I do mean each one of us, if you are a child of faith, has a co-witness who is with you and in you. I do not go alone. It's the Holy Spirit and I, me on a physical level and the Holy Spirit on a spiritual level. And thus I have confidence because the Lord is with me and his power is with me. I used to play a little game with my uh, kids when they were younger. You probably played it too if you're a parent and we called it robot. And the kids would say robot and I'd immediately come and I'd stand and my child would turn around and they would put their feet on my feet and they would put their hands in my arms and when they moved, I would move. And it was as if I became their uh, giant exoskeleton. They were small, 30, 40, 50 pounds. Yet when they were me, as I was their robot, all of a sudden their force was multiplied. Their strength was greater. They could do anything, things that they couldn't do. It was amplification and leverage. We don't think of the Holy Spirit and the living Christ this way. We look at ourselves and our feebleness and our inexperience and our unlearnedness and say, what can I do? How effective is my witness? We don't see the one who is standing behind us, who's ready to bring to bear all the powers of the kingdom of God as we proclaim the simple message, Christ has come. Christ was crucified. Christ has risen again that you might have life in his name if you too bow your knee and call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. What great power accompanies us. What awesome witness. You too must testify for I have come to you and you will be my witnesses. Did not Jesus say all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me? So go and make disciples. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And surely I'm with you, even to the end of the age. As you go out into the world, where you work and you live and you play, do you see the great opportunity to be like the disciples, like the apostles, a witness for Jesus Christ? Oh, that we would see the great mission that God has us two on in Virginia Beach and Chesapeake and all the area around in Norfolk in the year 2018. But what will the response of the world be? Notice verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone kills you thinks he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. It seems indescribable, inexplicable, but some people think it's a good thing to persecute Jesus and his followers. But then again, it may not be too difficult at all to understand. For maybe you, like me one time, were that very person. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace on earth, but division. Remember when Simeon blessed Joseph and Mary and spoke of this child who is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Oh, and Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. I wish I could say as I send you out and send myself out that all will be rosy, that all will receive, that all will accept the name of Jesus Christ. But that is not the truth. There will be many who will shy away. There may come a time in this very country where we are not allowed to meet like this and speak so freely and openly of Jesus Christ. Don't think it cannot happen. But at the same time, Jesus said, if they kept my word, some will keep yours also. The gospel goes forth because there are men and women out there who are our brothers and sisters waiting to be awoken at the sound of the gospel. Do you hunger and long for them to come into God's house? Thank goodness for Jerry Leachman and Young Life who took the time to come and to put up with a belligerent child named Carlos Rodriguez and share the gospel. Some, of course, will decry. Some will curse you. But some, their eyes will be opened. There's one thing that is certain, and that is that the gospel and the church cannot be stopped. To live is Christ and to die is gain, and the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We stand on the shoulders of giants, men and women, before us who have left all to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. We shall not shirk from our holy responsibility and privilege to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. You too must testify. There is a responsibility of our faith, but there is a resource of our faith, the Holy Spirit. I will be with you. The power of God to accompany the words of God. And so let us 
look out into our mission field. And let us go and without fear or favor, give a reason for the hope that is within us when asked. Proclaim Jesus Christ. For Christianity is either of utmost importance or of no importance at all. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Let's pray. We thank you for the Ann Sullivans of the world, of the Christian faith, who went to the lost, who go to the lost every day, and reach into their blindness and speak of the Savior. Let us too remember the cost of the cross and that we are redeemed and the responsibility of our faith, the resource that you give us. And let us go without fear or favor. Proclaim the gospel to an unbelieving world regardless of the response knowing that this is the call that you have given to the church. It's the call that you've given to you and me. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.